Well, there's certainly many things to be annoyed by on the internet, but lately one of the things that annoyed me is particularly uh, the tendency that some Christians have of being very sanctimonious or sort of punctilious about certain things about the church life. And what I mean in particular is through the Advent season, this always pops up on social media or I read comment sections on Christian sites where a person will be wishing somebody else Merry Christmas in the middle of December and some helpful do-gooder know-it-all steps in and says, no, it's Advent, you can't be wishing people Merry Christmas. Sometimes that happens in church life and it's probably well-meaning. I know that uh, in our church, for example, we try to keep the focus on Advent for some reasons and and start bringing out the Christmas decorations on Gaudete or Joy Sunday, the third Sunday of Advent. But one of my second most irritating group of Christians uh, on the internet are the ones who are always pointing out that Christmas is actually a 12-day season, and you have to keep saying Merry Christmas all the way until today, which is January 6th. You find this many times, of course, through Lent and other seasons of the church, where people all seem like a little bit too uptight about the church year. I mention all of that because I don't want us to all go off now and be irritating Christians on the internet. Instead, I'm, excuse me, I point out these things for you today because despite the fact that Christians can spin it in irritating ways, it's actually quite an important thing for us as Christians to recognize the importance of the church calendar. I want to speak to you today a little bit about why the 12 days of Christmas ending in Epiphany today is something important for us to observe, and including the entire church calendar. And then I'll speak to you also about what some of the, the meaning of the readings we heard today are from Isaiah 60 and from Matthew 2, where we celebrate uh, how the wise men, the Magi, came from the east and gave great gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh to Jesus. So to start off then, to start talking about the 12 days of Christmas, why is it something that's worth observing and why is it that we talk about it many times in the church, even though it's sometimes used in ways that are irritating? Well, to start illustrating that a little bit, I'd like to uh, make you think back to times where you've taken vacations and ask whether you've had the similar kind of experience to me. You go on a vacation for maybe two or three weeks and you uh, make sure you plan really well to surround yourself with fun things. Maybe if you're lucky enough, you fly down to the Dominican Republic and you have an all-inclusive vacation where you know you're going to, I can see you putting two thumbs up there, <laughs> Ed. Uh, you know that it's going to be great, right? You're going to sit on the beach and have a margarita, and then you're going to go to the buffet and eat too much, and then you're going to dance the night away, and then uh, all of those great things, or maybe as often as happened, we'll go on a camping trip with the kids, and you do all the flurry of planning. Well, here's what often happens with me, and maybe it happens with you. You get super worked up in the time leading up to the vacation, because you've got a million things to plan, you've got everything to do, and your work is going to stack up, so you try to make sure to get as much done as you can. Then you go off on your vacation and you just start relaxing when you look at the calendar and realize, uh-oh, i got to go home tomorrow. And then after you just started relaxing, you start ramping up your stress and you come back thinking, oh no, I've got a mountain of stuff on my desk that I'm going to have to do. There's a human tendency when you have that time period, even when you surround yourself with joyful things, celebratory things, there's a human tendency for us simply to be unable to enjoy them. We speak about the Christmas season being a 12-day season. I think it's one of the ways that God's Holy Spirit has worked through the teaching of the church to remind us that even things like joy, celebration, and appreciation of good things are things that require discipline, effort, and time. Think about Christmas this year. Probably, if you're like me, you've got kids or grandkids and nieces and nephews you have to shop for. 
you fight the crowds, you go and get your turkey, you do all of that. For me, Christmas Day, uh, and Christmas Eve, of course, is a very long day by nature of my occupation. Christmas Day, I, I finished the service here, and gratefully I had Ed to step in and help by preaching. But I go home, and then I cook the turkey, and I do this, and at the end of Christmas Day, I'm wiped out. And I turn on, you know, Magic 100, because they got the Christmas music, and every three minutes, they stop to say, don't forget, get up early to go Boxing Day sale. You have barely a moment to really appreciate the day and the significance of Christ's incarnation before you're back to reality. I find that although I talk about the incarnation, I preach about the incarnation, I talk about how this dignifies the goodness of creation, Christ is born in our world, God, the creator of all things, comes as a little baby and dignifies even the stable and the manger. And yet we go on in our lives without really thinking what that means on an everyday basis. It means that the good things of creation are things that God wants us to enjoy. And we don't naturally do it unless we train ourselves to do it. The 12 days are not always something that we can observe with all feasting. I mean, back in the Middle Ages, people basically took two weeks off around the Christmas season. We don't always have that opportunity. But what we do have is the church calendar encouraging us to say, will you take seriously the good things that God has given to you and take them for the way that they're intended to be things that you savor? That's not always easy to do. Sometimes we're thinking about other things and we need to keep being drawn back to saying, do you realize that this sausage roll tastes fantastic? Do you realize how wonderful that simple pleasure of going to skate with your children is? Do you realize how great it is to listen to your children playing with that little karaoke machine somebody gave to you? The simple things in life are, are not just the grand gifts that happen on Christmas morning. They're the simple things in life that God wants us to enjoy because they're good. We take that time in the church calendar to appreciate properly the things that God gives us and to train ourselves to enjoy the good things of creation. Now, that's just a slice of what the church calendar is about because what the church wants us to do, why Christ created the church, is to help us to live up to the full potential he gave us in making us in God's image. And part of what God's image means is truly appreciating what's good. But as we go through the other parts of the church here, that's intended to do the same things in different aspects of what it means to be human. After today, Epiphany will come to an end, and then uh, the Christmas season comes to an end in Epiphany, but what do we do through the season after Epiphany? That lasts all the way till Lent, which starts, I believe, in uh, the end of February this year. The readings we'll hear, the focus we'll have on Sundays will be about how we deal with the significance of Christ's light coming to earth. And so next week we'll hear the story of how people go off into the desert, a waste place where they expect no light, no life, no exciting, enlivening things. And what do they find? They find Jesus baptized in the River Jordan. God's voice saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. They find affirmation. They find the power of the Holy Spirit descending like a peaceful dove upon this person. People who go out expecting desert waste find life-giving nourishment through Christ. The week after that, what do we find? Jesus goes and he takes water, the most basic building block of life, as boring as can be, and he transforms it by a miracle into wine, an abundant harvest of wine for people to celebrate a joyful occasion, the wedding. All through Epiphany season, that's exactly what we look at, is where Christ, the light, shines into places that seem gray, boring, ordinary, but with those with eyes of faith see how the light of Christ is present, and it encourages and trains us to start looking where, for Christ, where Christ's light is present in perhaps unseen or unnoticed places. We get into Lent and we ask, where have we obscured the light of Christ? 
Where have our eyes been closed to God's work? Where have our habits or our behaviors prevented us from seeing the goodness of God? In Easter, we think to ourselves as we celebrate Christ's resurrection, have we been afraid of sin and death? Have we been afraid of the world? We are reminded through the Easter season that Christ is risen and the law of sin and death have been broken and beaten down under his feet. We come through the Pentecost season and we are reminded of how God's Spirit works through us in ordinary, everyday things to help us grow and to be shaped. In this year where we begin the year, the secular year, starting off making so many different resolutions, I think one of the things God's calling us to at Epiphany season as we start off uh, a, a new aspect of the church calendar is to start taking seriously the formation that the church wants to give us by virtue of its calendar, to make us a more well-rounded, more complete, more full human being as a result of following what the calendar suggests. If you want to do something this year that's a great resolution that uh, is not just uh, to take fewer sweets, as good as that might be, take on the resolution of taking seriously the rhythm of life that God is inviting you into. And here's a suggestion of where to start. Start making Sundays great again, to paraphrase a certain president. To make Sundays great is to say that at the very beginning, God gives us the Sabbath and says, make it holy, because he knows that one of the essential rhythms that human beings need is time to rest. You work by the sweat of your brow for six days of the week, and God says that man was not made just for work. Women were not just made for work. We were made also to enjoy the fruits of creation, to rest, to be refreshed. The world tells us, go 24-7, work all the time, do your grocery shopping, book all of the things that you want to do on Sunday. And a core suggestion that God gives to us, in fact, a commandment God gives to us, is that we take the Sabbath day and really ask ourselves, how can we make it once again a day of rest? Not all of us are able to take Sundays off because of the nature of our jobs, but I think an encouraging thing for us to do when we think about the church year and the calendar is to start off small by saying, how can I make Sundays truly refreshing? Can I make Sundays the day where I have family dinners or I invite my grandchildren over to play? Can there be days where I make sure I take my children sledding or we go out uh, skating on the canal? Can Sundays be days where we spend time making dumplings or pierogies or things with our kids that they love to do? It could it be times where I make myself listen to good music or read a good novel. These aren't complicated things, but they are things God gives us and command to give us to make sure that we recognize the rhythm God has given to us is a holy and healthy rhythm. Our encouragement today is for our own betterment and for our refreshment to take seriously the calendar that God has given to us and the weekly rhythm that God has given to us. Now, I mentioned that that calendar issue is something I wanted to talk about, but I also want to talk about the specific readings today that we find in Epiphany Sunday. And they're readings that many of you will be familiar with. I think all of us, if you've been around the block a few times at church, will have heard many stories about the three uh, wise men that come. And of course, you probably heard all the debunking sermons about how it's not actually three wise men and there are actually three kings and all of that kind of jazz. I won't be the spoil sport and tell you all that stuff. Instead, what I want to ask is, as you read through these readings, to ask, what do they mean for us today? Here, greatly, wonderfully thing that God does here in an historical context, what does it mean for us? And I think one of the key things that Epiphany is showing us in these readings today is that God wants us to absorb the light he gives to us so that we might be people who reflect the light that naturally dwells in God. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is, is that when we look at the natural lights around us and we find that there are some things that emit light, like light bulbs or these candles, 
But many things that we look at and enjoy are in fact beautiful and enjoyable and illuminating because they're reflecting a greater light. A few months ago, I'm sure all of you will remember well when that tornado struck here, those several tornadoes struck here, and I know uh, some of you sitting here today had major damage that it was done to your homes. But what I remember most specifically was the power outage where I was living here in Parhu. And what I remember about that was, yes, we had to start using up some of the food in the fridge and we were out barbecuing, we had friends over, had good times. But what I remember most strikingly and vividly was how dark it was at night. We're used to mostly having uh, street lights all around and in my neighborhood, it's exactly what happened. And I go out and take my little doggy out for a walk in the evening. And so oftentimes I'll go out, it's almost as if it's daylight. But during the power outage, all the street lights were out, all the porch lights were out. And I was out walking my dog one of those nights and I thought, all the lights are out, why is it so bright out here? And I realized it was because it was a full moon. And the light in the street was really deep, beautiful, it had this bluish tinge. It made my neighborhood look gorgeous. In fact, mostly when I go out walking the dog, there's nobody really in the neighborhood out there. But what I found was is that there were lots of people on their porch with maybe a little gas lantern talking with their neighbors or barbecuing something. And I'd find as I walked around too, there were uh, several times I walked past a photographer who had like a tripod set up because for the first time in perhaps years since the last power outage, you could actually see the stars and the glory of the sky. But did you know that the moon has no light of its own? The moon is bright. It's only bright because when the sun is hidden behind the earth, its rays of powerful light hit the moon, and the moon during the full moon is the time where it reflects the light of the sun to the earth, and that's how it illuminates, and how it's beautiful. If we look at the initial passage, the passage we read here, uh, or uh, Jerusha read for us from the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 60, it's a very interesting thing that's going on. Because it talks about the light of God, the glory of God shining on Israel, but then it interestingly makes a switch. And the glory of God it talks about coming from God starts talking about the glory that come from the people of Israel. Listen to what I mean, or listen to what I, I um, am getting that from. Isaiah chapter 60. Arise, shine, for your light has come. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Darkness shall cover the earth, thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will appear over you. This is all God's glory, God's light. But listen how the next verse suddenly switches. It starts talking about God's glory, but in verse 3 it says, Nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Lift up your eyes and look around. They all gather together, they come to you. Your son shall come from far away. Your daughters shall be carried on their nurses' arms. Then you shall see and be radiant, and your heart shall thrill and rejoice. Later it says, how a multitude of camels, those from Sheba, will come with gold and frankincense and proclaim the praise of the Lord. You notice the shift? It starts with God's glory and then starts talking about the glory of his people Israel. This part of Isaiah was written to the Israelites at a time where they were at their absolute lowest. You may have heard me in previous sermons talking about the history of Israel and how Israel was crushed by a mighty empire called Babylon. And Babylon didn't just come to take a few things and go away. Babylon came and took the capital city, Jerusalem, the capital city of Israel, broke down the gates, tore down the walls, burned down the temple, killed off a tremendous amount of the population, took all of the artisans, the nobles, the priests, the people who were scholars, and dragged them into slavery in Babylon. And all that was left were the poor, the uneducated, the people who had no hope, no power, and desperate and weak. That's why this passage talks about the darkness that covers you. 
There were dark, terrible days. But why does God say they should have hope? That God's glory will shine on Israel, but by soaking up the glory and reflecting the glory of God, Israel itself, weak though it naturally is, will become a bright light that attracts others. God promises that the sons and daughters that were carried away into slavery in Babylon will come back to you and be drawn because you reflect the glory and the light of God. Now we might dismiss that and say, well, of course, you've got mighty figures and prophets in the history of Israel were tremendous giants of faith. But what's so interesting to me about the period of exile was when you read through books that are written in the exile, like Daniel or like uh, Nehemiah, they don't tell stories of people who do miraculous things. In fact, they tell stories mostly about people who do very ordinary things. But they are people that God uses to do extraordinary things, even if they don't seem miraculous at the time. Nehemiah is a great example. Do you remember in Sunday school? I remember in Sunday school hearing about Nehemiah because we used to do crafts about building the walls of Jerusalem. Nehemiah is one of the people dragged off into slavery. And you know what his job ended up being? The very beginning of the book of Nehemiah, we're told what his job is. I was cupbearer to the king. Do you know what a cupbearer is? Kings in the ancient world were always afraid somebody's going to poison them. The best thing that a king could do to prevent it was to grab one of his slaves, his lackeys, and say, take a drink of this cup. Make sure there's no poison in it. And you wait around a few minutes, and if he doesn't drop dead, then you can drink your cup. That was Nehemiah's job. Nehemiah, come over here. Taste this. Drink this. Wait five minutes. You're not dead, Nehemiah? Okay, well, I'll, I'll eat it. Nehemiah's job was basically to be a guinea pig. And yet what's so interesting about that story, Nehemiah was unremarkable in every way except he was faithful in his prayer life and he kept as best he could under difficult circumstances the way that God showed him to do. What happens? One day, Nehemiah, after he'd heard the terrible news of Jerusalem having no walls, that the poor and the broken of Jerusalem are regularly raided by bandits, they have no protection, it's all anarchy and disorder. He comes into the king's presence to do his regular job, and the king notices he doesn't look so good. And the king, of course, doesn't like to have downers in his court. Nehemiah, I'm sure, is frightened, and so when the king says, Nehemiah, what's with the long face? Nehemiah has the courage, instead of just saying, I'm so sorry, king, it'll never happen again, he says, king, I heard the news that my beloved city, Jerusalem, is a wasteland, that bandits take away from the people that are left. So the king, surprisingly and without miracle, God influences the king's heart to say, you know what, Nehemiah, I'm going to give you everything you need to go back and rebuild the walls. And so he gives Nehemiah his freedom, gives him money, gives him authority, gives him materials, and says, go back and build those walls. What kind of training did Nehemiah have? Well, I can be a great sommelier. I can tell one wine from another. But what does God do? God, simply by virtue of Nehemiah's faithfulness and soaking up the glory of the Lord, uses Nehemiah to bring back peace, prosperity, and stability to Jerusalem that it desperately needs. Not because of Nehemiah's inherent goodness, but because Nehemiah stepped close to God. God used him as an instrument, and God, by his great power, turned the heart of the king and allowed him to go free. Jerusalem was rebuilt, and the temple rebuilt, and that is the temple Jesus visited when we hear in the Gospels. If you look at Jesus, it is something similar. Do you notice the story of the star? Jesus, at this point, is a baby. We hear in Philippians that he had no power. God emptied, Christ emptied himself to become uh, in the form of a slave. He's lying in a manger in a stable, and he's doing nothing that inspires anybody by his actions. But what happens? 
The glory of God appears in the sky. The wise men, the magi, come and they want to bring him glory. Why? Because they saw God's glory resting upon him. They saw the miraculous way God's glory descends on that house where Jesus was staying and they delight and bring him great gifts. It's a fulfillment, Matthew says, of the prophecy in Isaiah of how uh, those from far away will bring you gifts of gold and frankincense. Think to our own lives. We look at how that works where the glory of the Lord reflected in people draws others. That is exactly what our lives are supposed to be. Not by virtue of our wisdom and our greatness and our spiritual maturity so much as it is our willingness to stay close to God to soak up the light that he offers to us. What's our calling as Christians? To be lights in the world, not because we're self-generating lights, but like the moon that sheds forth a beautiful, wonderful light that makes everything else seem so much greater. We are to be people who are like moons to God's Son. The Son of Righteousness, Jesus, shines in our hearts to do, what are we told at the end of every service? To do infinitely more than what we can ask or imagine. So how do we stick close to God? You know, uh, just the other day, I was here, uh, I took much of the time off, as much as I could, and really tried to celebrate the 12 days, but I had to come in and do a little bit of work. I was in, and my dog, I often bring Indy, she's a golden doodle, she's gorgeous. I brought her in, uh, many times I go um, to the office, and I bring her with me, and Judy St. Hill is her uh, Eucharistic coordinator, said, you know, I didn't even realize you had a dog, you got to talk about your dog more, so I thought, okay, I'll work it into my sermon. <laughs> But here's why I, I put this in about the doggy. You know what's so interesting about that dog and why I enjoy having her? It's not because she can do lots of tricks. She really can't. She's house trained, but she doesn't just sort of do back flips. And I keep thinking I want to train her. Even when I go uh, to the dog park, she doesn't fetch very well. And I thought she's half a golden retriever. She should at least be half decent at fetching, but she's not. But you know what I love so much about this dog? I just realized she just loves hanging around me. Wherever I go, it's like I'm sitting in the armchair reading and the dog's right there at my feet. And then I get up to go to the bathroom and she follows me and waits outside the door in the bathroom until I get out and then she follows me back to my chair. When I go out to, to the office, on times where I know it's not going to be busy, uh, I'll walk to the door and as soon as she hears me with the keys, she runs out, probably hoping for a walk. But even when she looks through the window and sees I'm just getting into the car, I can hear her through the window going, hmm, 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 hmm. What does she want? She wants to come with me. So I put her in the back, I bring her here, and as soon as I pull into the parking lot, as soon as I open the door, she heads right for the door, wants to come in, and then all day she sits at my feet. She just loves hanging around me. Now, I'm not going to compare myself to hanging around Jesus, but there is a similarity there in the sense that what that dog loves is not even so much what I give her, she just loves being with me. How do we soak up the light of Christ so we can be a reflector of that light? It's to say, well, where is Christ present? Why don't I hang out there? You know, one of the things that Christ promises to do, he promises to be present with his people at church. Now he's present in the world, but there's something special. There are promises attached to us coming. One of the things that Sunday is holy about is not just rest, but it's also to be refreshed by the light of Christ. When I speak, I know that I don't always hit one out of the park. Some days good, sometimes not so good. But you know why? It's powerful to come and listen to a sermon preached or to hear the word not because of the power of the preacher, it's because God made a promise. There's a promise attached to the word. In Isaiah elsewhere, God says, my word will not return to me empty, but will accomplish the task I gave it. God's words are powerful because he's attached a promise to them, even through imperfect vessels. Why is it we gather in music, we listen and we joyfully appreciate, sometimes music doesn't click, we all have different days. 
Is it because of the brilliance of the singing or that the choices are always suiting us? No, it's because what God promises is says, I'm enthroned in the praises of my people. And when we gather here, why do we find uh, joy? Why do we find Christ's light in the presence of other people, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? It's not because they're always oozing maturity and strength. It's because of the promise Christ makes. He says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I will be in your presence. He promised that he will be here in our presence. You come to church because you soak up the light that Christ says he promises will be here. How do we make a difference in the world? Yes, we need to work on our character. Yes, there are many things that we can do practically, but in the end, what really matters in our ability to change the lives of the people around us and the world around us, in our neighborhoods, our families, our offices, what changes is our willingness to be present for Christ, to open our hearts and say, Christ, use me as a vessel that reflects your glory. If you want to be a light in the world, then don't focus on what you're able to do. Focus on what Christ is able to do through you. And start learning that by spending time where you see Christ. Yes in prayer, yes in scripture, yes in meeting for Bible study. But of course, so importantly, here as we gather in church, to come always ready to reflect the light of Christ, to soak it up, so the world might be lightened when it's in darkness, knowing the power of Christ is working through you. There's real hope for this world, not because of my greatness or your greatness. There's hope for the world because the greatness of the Lord works through imperfect people like you and me, because he loves us, and he wants to use us as instruments of his goodness, mercy, and love. That's a good thing to start off the year with.